A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, 1 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltael, Shiltael, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Now those are some great opening lines to some of the greatest novels ever written. They draw you into their stories. They make you want to know more. Why was the man invisible? Was he really invisible or was he, was he just metaphorically invisible? And why would a boy possibly deserve a terrible name like Eustace Clarence Scrub? I mean, that's a terrible thing for a parent to do to a child. And so you want to know more when reading these first lines. You, you need to, more, to know more. They, they draw you in. So, why does Matthew start with a genealogy? I mean, all of our eyes, they, they just glaze over as we read so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And especially when, when we can't even pronounce half of the names, Ginny did an incredible job. I'm grateful that I wasn't the one that had to actually read that out loud. And so, especially when we can't even pronounce the names, it, it just, our eyes glaze over. And, and why would Matthew start with that? I mean, even 2,000 years ago, he had to have known that, that a strong introduction draws your reading, readers and audience in. So why does he start 
with a genealogy. I think while, while our eyes, they glaze over at the genealogy of Jesus, I, I think that Matthew's original audience, they would have been, been shocked and intrigued. Jesus is the one that the Jewish people had been hoping for for hundreds of years. The genealogy of Jesus is, is a bold statement about the identity and the mission of Jesus. And so I think they would have leaned in and they would have said, tell me more. And so this morning we are talking about the word hope. And I'm not talking about the hope of, of mere wishing, of, of how a child hopes for the latest toy or the latest gadget for Christmas. Or, or maybe that, that some of us are, are hoping that there are still Thanksgiving leftovers in the fridge for after the service. I'm talking about the true biblical hope. Biblical hope is expectant longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. And Christmas, it brings hope because even though we live in a dark and broken world, it means that Jesus has come into the world and he will come once again to make all things right. Matthew, in Matthew 1.1, he writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew is, is connecting Jesus to, to David and to Abraham, the two, two of the greatest figures in Israel's history. It, it would be like one of us being connected to both George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, being connected to one of them would be pretty, pretty awesome, but being connected to both of them is truly incredible. And what Matthew is saying is, is that, that Jesus is here Jesus has come to fulfill the promises that, that God has made to both David and to Abraham. And that would have been exciting news. And so Matthew makes it clear that, that Jesus is the son of David. He makes it explicit in verse 1-1, but then he lists out all of the generations in between David down on to Jesus. But why is Jesus being the son of David? Why is that such a big deal? Well, first of all, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was the king that, that every other king is measured up against of whether or not they are a good king. And so that's one big reason. But, but the even bigger reason of, of why it's important that Jesus is the son of David is that God, all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, he made a promise. He made a covenant to David. And in this promise, he writes, when your days are over, you rest, when you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I mean, isn't that a promise that you cling to? That God himself is going to establish a kingdom that will last forever for one of your descendants. 
But it didn't seem like that was going to be actually the case. So almost immediately after David's son Solomon and successor, after he died, the, the, the kingdom of Israel, it, it had a civil war and it, it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, within 250 years, it was destroyed. And then the southern kingdom, it, it continued in this downward trend until eventually they were taken over by the Babylonians and their best and brightest were shipped off into exile in Babylon. But even when the Jewish people, even though they seemed to have hit rock bottom, they were still clinging to this promise that God had made to David that he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. And so the prophets, they, 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 they hear of God's words of, of this coming kingdom and, and they further describe what this kingdom is going to be like. And so Alan Wakabayashi in his book, Kingdom Come, he writes, that in the Old Testament, we find prophetic hopes that pointed to a time when God would intervene and bring restoration to his people Israel and to his fallen creation. It was about people being reconciled to God, people being at peace with each other, and all of the created order of plants and animals existing in harmony, war ceasing, and government submitting to the divine kingship of God. And so the Old Testament prophets, they, they see this kingdom that God is going to establish and, and, and they're pointing out that, that this kingdom, it's going to be a kingdom of healing and redemption and restoration. And that when God finally brings it, sin and death are going to be banished. And so that's something that they are clinging to even in the midst of those dark days. And so by the time that Jesus by the time that Jesus is born, it has been 950 years since God made this covenant and this promise to David. It has been 600 years since, since the southern kingdom of Judah that, that they've been taken over and they've been shipped off into exile and they've been under foreign oppression ever since. And it has been 400 years since God last spoke to them directly through one of his prophets. I don't know about you, but, but I start to get antsy if, if someone doesn't reply to one of my text messages or one of my phone calls within a few hours. Or, or if they don't reply to one of my emails within a day or two. Much less hundreds of years. And we as Americans, we, we can't comprehend the 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 humiliation and the longing for freedom that would come with being an oppressed people by foreigners. We declared our independence from the British in 1776, which was 241 years ago. That's under half of the length that the Jewish people were under foreign occupation. And so they were desperately hungry for God to fulfill his promise to David. And I wonder that if some of them in the back of their minds, I wonder if they were starting to wonder, has God forgotten about us? Has God forgotten about his promise he made to David? Or has he reneged on his deal and is going to turn his back on us? 
And so it is tremendous, earth-shaking news that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the one who this, this kingdom that God is going to establish, the one who that's going to come to fruition in. It is exciting news. And Matthew's audience would have leaned in and said, tell me more. This is the one we've been hoping for. And not only is Jesus the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And now this is one of the places that Jesus is not the Messiah the Jewish people were expecting. The Jewish people were expecting another another King David, a a military warrior, and and Alexander the Great who was going to march in with his armies and, and kick out all of the foreigners. But thankfully, for those of us in this room that that don't have Jewish blood in us, that was never God's intention. God, all the way back in Genesis 12, 3, he, he makes a promise, he makes a covenant with Abraham saying, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the one that all people will be blessed through Abraham. Jesus is coming to fulfill this promise. Jesus is not coming to fulfill just the hopes of Israel, but Jesus is coming to fulfill the hopes of the entire world. And so the genealogy of Jesus, and and indeed Christmas itself, mean that the hope for God to fulfill his promises to Abraham and David, they are coming to fruition in Jesus. And that's tremendously exciting news. And so we fast forward a few years after Jesus' birth, and, and, and Matthew and Mark both have Jesus early on in his ministry, and he's, he's walking around Galilee. And he's going around and he, he's proclaiming in Mark 1.15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying God's kingdom that he's going to establish, it's here. It's present because I've shown up. Now the kingdom that, that Jesus is, is talking about isn't kind of a kingdom that, that, that we normally think of, of, of having borders and a capital. But God's kingdom that he's coming to establish is a kingdom where, where God's rule and reign are evident in all of creation. Where is your kingdom? Where is your rule and reign evident? One of my kingdoms is my car. It only goes where I drive it to go, and, and then it stays there until I go back and I move it. And, and nothing goes in my car or, or, or comes out of my car with, without my permission. And so my car is, is my kingdom where my rule and reign happens. It's not a very big kingdom, but it's my kingdom nonetheless. And so Jesus is is talking about the rule and reign of God breaking in to the world. And so we see this this kingdom of God, it's breaking in all around. Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom is, is sprouting up around him. So Jesus, the the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And and she's been searching around and she's been going to doctors and she can't find a cure. 
She sneaks out behind Jesus and, and she touches the back of his cloak and, and she's immediately healed. And the man who is both deaf and mute After coming into contact with Jesus, he goes home and he hears his family's voices. And they hear his. The blind see after coming into contact with Jesus and the lame walk. A legion of demons who had been tormenting a man, they obey Jesus and they flee into a herd of pigs. And not only does that, but Jesus walks up to a girl that had died. And he takes her by the hand and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she does. God's kingdom, his redemptive rule and reign are sprouting up everywhere where Jesus goes. And it's tremendously exciting. Jesus has invaded this world with God's kingdom and he's secured our forgiveness for our sins, and he has struck the decisive blow against sin and death through his redemptive death and on the cross and through his resurrection. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross is similar to the World War II battle of D-Day. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in France. The beaches of Normandy were held by the Nazis, and at great cost on that day, the Allies, they secured a beachhead. And after securing that beachhead, the victor of the war was already known. There were still many battles to be fought at great price, but the victory had already been accomplished because the beachhead had been secured. And so that's what Jesus has done on the cross. He has secured a beachhead. The battle still rages, but the victory over the war has been won. And so we, we today, we, we live in the tension of what's known as the already but not yet. Jesus has already inaugurated the kingdom and he has struck the definitive blow against sin and death and the corruption of this world. But we were waiting and hoping for the not yet. When Jesus' return, Jesus will return and his kingdom will come in all of its power and glory, making all things right. And while we wait for Jesus' return, while we wait for him to make all things right, we've experienced a lot of darkness and a lot of brokenness in this room. There are some of us in this room that, that are grappling with going through the process of divorce. There are some of us in this room that, that we've received the latest CT scan. And it reveals that, that the chemotherapy hasn't been working and the cancer has spread. There are those of us in this room that, that we have family members and close friends who, who just can't seem to kick the addiction that's threatening to, to destroy their lives. There are women in this room who have been grossly violated and are dealing with the shame and the hurt 
of being sexually harassed. There's a lot of darkness that we have had to deal with in this room. And not only do we deal with the darkness in this room, but, but, but the darkness and the brokenness of the world, it, it, it is in, around the entire world. I love listening to and reading the news, but there are times that I have to turn it off because it threatens to overwhelm. The mass shootings that, that seem like they're coming on a regular basis. The opioid crisis that, that's claiming far too many lives. The ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. The wars and conflicts that, that are causing the refugee crisis both in the Middle East and also in Latin America. There were 21.3 million refugees in the world in 2016. And then there's global terrorism, which continues to strike fear into our lives. There were 300 people killed in Egypt on Friday. Sometimes this darkness in our lives and the darkness in the world, it, it feels like it's threatening to overwhelm. So in the midst of this darkness, we groan and we long for our ultimate hope. It wasn't until my, my first semester of seminary that, that I finally understood that our ultimate hope wasn't what they have in, in, in the morning comics of, of us floating as spirits on, on clouds just strumming harps. That isn't our ultimate hope. And I think New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he captures what our ultimate hope really is. He describes that the earliest Christians, they believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. On Easter, Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death and he was resurrected. He had a glorified and imperishable body. And the good news is his resurrection is just a foretaste of what is to come. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he talks about how that, that just like Jesus has this resurrected bodies that we too will one day have resurrected bodies that are glorified and imperishable. They will no longer be ravished by disease and injury, but they, nor will they be diminished with age. They will be perfect bodies that are never broken. And not only do we who believe, not only are we going to experience resurrection, but, but the the Bible says that, that all of creation is going to experience this resurrection. Paul in Romans 8, 19 to 21, he writes, for the creation itself, it waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation itself suffers the same decay and death that we do. And so it's longing for the same resurrection life that we long for. 
And so N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, he, he writes, precisely because creation is the work of God's love, redemption is not something alien to the creator, but rather something he will undertake with delight and glad self-giving. Redemption doesn't mean scrapping what's there and starting again from a clean slate, but rather liberating what has come to be enslaved. So creation, God's plan isn't to just destroy and scrap creation, but but God's intention is to come back and, and to redeem and to heal and to resurrect creation. And so we, along with all of creation, we long for the day when we all experience the resurrection life of Easter. Now in the meantime, Jesus' kingdom, it's, it's breaking out all around us. And we are called to be a part of it breaking into the world. Jesus has invited us to be a part of his mission. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches his disciples, but seek first his kingdom. Jesus isn't saying just leave it up to God, he'll take care of it, but, but he's inviting us to be a part of what God is doing. Now my dad, he, growing up, he loved do-it-yourself projects. He loved working on our house. We, we joked growing up that we moved a mile down the street because he ran out of projects to do on our first home. And so he had to get a new house to start new projects on. And so he would enlist my brothers and I in helping him in these do-it-yourself projects. Now, I have to admit, there were plenty of times when, when I didn't want to help because oftentimes the projects They were really hard work. But looking back on it, I am so grateful that he invited me to be a part of what he was doing. Even though I was the youngest and the least capable of my brothers, he still wanted me to be a part of what he was doing and be a part of his mission of making our home a better place. And so I think likewise, Jesus is, he's inviting us into his mission. He's inviting us to be a part of the, the kingdom of God breaking in. And that is an incredible privilege. It is hard work, but it's an incredible privilege to be a part of the greatest rescue story the world has ever known. And now there there are lots of ways that we can be a part of the kingdom breaking in, but one of those ways is that we can be people of hope in a dark world. One of of what Larry says oftentimes is is that, that half of ministry is just showing up. And so who are the people in your life who are struggling, who are having a hard time? What would it look like for you to show up for those people. On your way in this morning, you, you received a card of, of, of ways to possibly live out hope. And so we wanted to hand this out and, and we wanted to offer several concrete ideas of, of here's how we can show up for people in our community. 
And if, if one of those doesn't look like, like an option that would fit you, please come find me. Let's talk. Let, email me. Call me. Let's have coffee in my office and, and let's explore how you can be a part of God's kingdom breaking in and bringing hope in this world. And I think it's not only our own physical actions, but I also think that, that we can bring hope by the ways that, of, of how we use our finances. Every Christmas Eve, Waterstone takes a Christmas Eve offering for, for an outside ministry that brings the hope of Christ into the world. And so this Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve offering is going to go to a, an incredible organization called Plant with Purpose. It's a Christian organization that, that is down in the Dominican Republic, and they are quite literally trying to get at the roots of poverty. They are going down and they are working on reforestation. They are working with, with farmers who are living in sub-poverty, and, and, and they're teaching them sustainable farming techniques. And so they are hoping that, that they, can, they can build a foundation for these families to break the cycle of poverty and to experience the hope of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, even if, where are places that you can support with your finances that express the hope of Jesus around this world? Now, I want to encourage you, the, the, our, our action, our work, our, our labors on behalf of the kingdom, they, they matter. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves full to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus took the five loaves of bread and the, and the two fish and he fed 5,000 people with that. And so I think oftentimes we, we think that our, our labor on behalf of the Lord, we, we, we look at it as something as so small and insignificant that how could this possibly do any good? But I think that, that God can use our labors in incredible ways about bringing his kingdom and his hope into this world. And so I want to encourage you that, that your work and your labor on behalf of the kingdom is not in vain. Now, for those of you who, who are listening, who are saying, I'm, I'm already overwhelmed. The darkness and the brokenness of this world and of, of the events that are going on in my life, they're threatening to overwhelm me. I'm not sure I can see the hope anymore. Those of you who are wondering, maybe like those, those Jews, when they were waiting for, for the arrival of the Messiah, those that were wondering, does God, does God even remember us? Has he forgotten about his promises, or has he turned his back on? For those of you who are struggling to hope, I urge you, cling to Christmas. Christmas means that, that Jesus has come into this dark and broken world and he has paid a high price to defeat sin and death. 
And Jesus will not leave the job half done. Jesus will return. And his kingdom will come in full force. And it, all things will be redeemed and restored. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you are the author and the object of our faith. Thank you that you came to fulfill the promises to David and to Abraham. Thank you that you are bringing a kingdom of restoration and healing. And so, Father, I pray that that we would be eager to enter into working and laboring on behalf of your kingdom. And I also pray, especially for those of us in this room who who are struggling with feelings of hopelessness and that we we are questioning of whether or not you're faithful. God, I, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would strengthen their faith to cling to the fact that you have already come and that you are coming again to make all things right. And so, Father, we we lift this prayer up to you in your name. Amen. Advent is the season of the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent literally means coming, the arrival. And it's referring to the arrival of Jesus to the planet Earth. And so every year during Advent, we, we light four candles before Christmas Eve. And these four candles, they represent the words hope, peace, joy, and love. And these four words, they, they represent the way that God is, is his redemptive plan for this universe and how they center on the person of Jesus. And so this year, we are lighting our Advent candles at the end of our services. And we're doing this intentionally to express our deep longing for Jesus' second Advent, for his second coming of when he will make all things right. And so in preparation for lighting of the hope candle, will you join me in a responsive prayer? Read the the parts that say all. Christ has come. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. 